Welcome into the Odds and Audibles podcast edition. I'm Matt Frame, Eric Scopel with me on the show as always. And today is Wednesday, which means Eric goes to the mailbox and picks out some questions that you, the Duck fan, has submitted to us uh, over the course of the last week. And we got a lot of stuff, a lot of good questions. Excitement abound with the season starting this week with a weekend game against Stanford at home, 4.30 kick on ABC. And before we dive into the mailbag, I want to remind everyone out there, you could subscribe to DuckTerritory.com for as low as $1 for your first month, $9.95 after that. Or you could save over $36 by subscribing to our annual membership. It's a one-time payment, $75.18. You save over $36 over the course of the year opposed to that month-to-month payment. So highly encourage you guys to consider doing either of those options. Inside scoop on the Oregon Ducks, expert analysis and opinion. Read all the content across the 24-7 Sports Network, not just our site, but every site within the 24-7 Sports Network. And by subscribing to the show really allows us to continue doing these podcasts uh, on such a regular platform daily schedule almost uh by you know we can't do these for free forever but uh by subscribing to the pod by subscribing to duckterritory.com ensures uh eric and i can continue doing these on a regular basis okay eric uh i I have a sneaking suspicion we're going to talk a lot of basketball on the podcast that's well that's what i'm expecting right i mean it's basketball season (laughs) and and we should note like joking aside like the basketball season starts in what like three weeks so i mean it kind of is but but kind of everyone wants to know about uh the 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 rotations for basketball not the quarterback not the offensive line what oregon's offense is going to look like uh what what's the the impact of the defense uh let's just blow over football i mean yeah none of that came up in today's no no that'll come up in today's show so (laughs) let's start here i think it's a good starting point just kind of encompassing a lot of what you just asked about or or brought up from at joe eluff what do you think will be the offense's biggest challenge to overcome in the early games a new qb1 brand new o-line or the lack of reps in a more of a game-like atmosphere um you know, and I, I'll be honest here, does the game-like atmosphere really matter, <laughs> considering it's not going to be a traditional game-like atmosphere anyway? Um, but I get his point in terms of, uh, well, let's just start here. Oregon didn't have a spring game. Uh, they're not going to have any warm-up games against smaller schools or, or even a game like Auburn that doesn't count against the, the, the Pac-12 record. Uh, and unfortunately, even the opportunity to fully scrimmage in fall was impacted as one of the two primary dates to do that uh, was lost, as we reported a couple weeks ago, because of uh, a, I don't even want to say a COVID-19 outbreak, but of, but of five positive antigen tests that turned out to be false positives. So um, I actually probably would say that's where my mind is at. And it's not that I expect that there won't be difficulties at quarterback or with the cohesion of a brand new offensive line. And again, it's five brand new starters. It's not just a couple players here and there. It's, it's literally five new guys, which is never easy. But the reality is this has been a year unlike any other in terms of the preparation. And as I think we've talked about in previous shows, like, like they, they just haven't had much, you know, <laughs> opportunity to really simulate what a game would even look like at practice. And, um, I know, like I said, to start here, just there aren't going to be fans in the stands. So that part's going to be its own added weirdness too. But um, I, I just think the lack of the scrimmaging, the lack of any non-conference games, um, and really the lack of a spring game, 
I, I think that's difficult. And especially, and this wasn't even one of the things he brought up here, but I'll, I'll kind of tack this on here um, before I hand it off to you. But it's not just that they don't have any of these opportunities to really simulate a game. It's the fact that you've got a brand new offense you're trying to implement with no opportunities to do that. So, um, you know, I think from a personnel perspective, there's a lot of things to be concerned about. And we've definitely talked about, you know, those, those are the issues in the past. But I, I think there's a real concern of just like, it's a weird year. And I know Stanford's been dealt the exact same hand. So it's not like they have a, a leg up in this regard. But uh, I, I mean, they've been had an opportunity to really go out and, and try to play a game before. And typically when you're playing a team like Stanford, you've had that opportunity. So I, I think that's a pr- probably the biggest challenge I see when I look at this group offensively. What about you, Matt? I'm going to blend his, he brought up three things, new quarterback, new offensive line, or lack of reps in a game-like atmosphere. I'm going to blend the last two. New offensive line without the game reps of a game-like atmosphere. Typically, uh, I asked Mario Cristobal this question earlier this week, and I don't think he quite understood. And that's kind of the unfortunate situation of the today's landscape of the media where we don't really get the option of following up or interjecting and you know correcting the coach if he misunderstood the question. But I was asking him, like, there's no – margin for error because there's no conference games and if you want to if you want to reach your ultimate goals of getting to a Pac-12 championship winning the north um, getting into the college football playoff discussion you know having the best possible season that you can possibly have you have to win every single game and you have to be playing at your best clip right away there are no hey we had a bad day we, we dropped one game, but everyone in the, you know, 99.9% of the, of the college teams in the country are going to lose a game. Uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll go 11 and one, we'll win our conference championship and, and we'll get into the playoff as a 12 and one team. Everyone's not playing the same amount of games. There's no non-conference games to be had. And so I look at this and think, uh, I'm looking at the biggest challenge of you have to replace five new starters along the offensive line and you don't get three non-conference games kind of ease yourself into yep. this season. You And you immediately go into a game in which an opponent last year really gave Oregon fits up front offensively. Oregon only scored 21 points uh, against Stanford last year. You know, I, I expect Oregon to dominate Stanford and, and to win this game on Saturday, but I'm also taking into account that Stanford, you know, you also have to acknowledge the fact that Stanford historically has been good up front and their defensive line and their front seven is stout. And every year, it doesn't really matter who they lose. They're always, you know, very respectable at minimum there. So I think replacing a new offensive line and not having the ability to, you know, for lack of a better word, play some cupcakes, you know, to get yourself ready for, for that game uh, is kind of scary. Yeah. And we, and we should know, yeah, like you said, Oregon didn't exactly dominate Stanford with the, with, when they were on offense last year um, and the running game, you look at the splits there for CJ Verdell. I think he had the most yard or sorry, the most carries of any game all season last year he had 24 carries in that game, but he didn't even get to hundred yards there um, had less than four yards per carry. Uh, I believe, Casey Tuhill was might've been pac 12 defensive player of the week that week. Cause I think he had either three sacks or at least had like multiple three to four tackles for loss. Um, Oregon had a really difficult time against that front and Tuhill's not there anymore. And, and that, that, that kind of, I guess, eases some of the concern, but 
the reality is this is a brand new offensive line, like you said, and this isn't a Stanford defense that's like lacking talent or that lacks typically at least lacks like a, you know, a good system. Like, I mean, this is a defense that typically is, is very talented and challenges Oregon and did so last year, even not under the best circumstances. And I, and I, I, I'm with you, Matt, in terms of like, I'm not expecting Stanford to come out and dominate this game. I, I really, I, again, I posted my predictions for, on the, on the website earlier this week on Monday and you can go check those out. Um, if you're more curious about them, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm confident Oregon is, is going to be in good shape in this game and we'll have a, uh, you know, more analysis throughout the week of why. But I do think that's cause for concern. I mean, the offensive line, the lack of experience there is cause for concern. And then on the flip side, you know, we see what Justin Herbert is able to do in the NFL with the pass rush coming at him. And I know at times last year, he had to bail plays out with his arm and with his legs. How prepared are either Tyler Stuck or Anthony Brown to take on that kind of similar role if, if they don't have very much time? And everybody's been really excited about how good CJ Verdell is and what we think he can be and um, comparing him to all these players nationally as one of the top guys, but how much can he really do if there's not much room up front? So now I'm with you, Matt. I think there's reason to be concerned about the offensive line as well. And, and, and ultimately like given the bizarre nature of the season and everything, Oregon has lost offensively. Like it makes sense that you enter the game one against an opponent like this, maybe not feeling super confident about certain aspects of things. Um, I don't think that's necessarily going to impact the end result. I think Oregon's going to win. I think they're going to win fairly handily. We'll do a full prediction podcast later in the week. But I, I think there's certainly room, you know, reason to not enter this game thinking like, oh, they're just going to steamroll Stanford offensively. Yeah, I think it's out of the question to, to sit here and say like Oregon is going to show up and expect them to yep. win this game like 56 to 7 or 56 to 14 or something of that nature. Like if Oregon comes out and scores 42 points in this game, I'm going to feel very, very good about where Oregon is at going into that, into this game. I, mean, I almost kind of think 30, you know, 31 to, to maybe 41 at the very high end is kind of a base for what Oregon could do on Saturday against Stanford. Like, Oregon, hasn't, yeah, Oregon hasn't scored more than 35 points against Stanford, by the way, since 2014. There's a that. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's reason here to be at least concerned to a certain degree about what this offense can do. With that said, I'm really excited to see what it looks like on Saturday, even though as we're recording this podcast on Wednesday, uh, there's no clarity of who's going to be the, the starting quarterback, and we have no idea still what the offense Oh, come on. We know who's starting. <laughs> I know we do. <laughs> Joe, I mean, I, I, can I just go off on a tangent here for a second? Like, oh, do it. Do it. I, go ahead. I understand like, Crystal Ball doesn't want to give an advantage, and he, and he doesn't want to name a starting quarterback without – you know, until he doesn't want to give away all the secrets is kind of what he said. I'm paraphrasing there, but like is putting Tyler is, is coming out and saying Tyler Shuck's going to be the starting quarterback. Really the reason why Oregon could lose the game, like, or is saying that Steven Jones is the starting left tackle and Malasala Omave is the starting right guard and George Moore is the starting right tackle. Like giving that information out, is that all of a sudden going to completely alter the dynamic of this football game because on paper he listed this guy as a starter like and this isn't just crystal ball this is just college football coach in general is one of the most paranoid people out there uh they hold every bit of information to their chest as they possibly can because it thinks it gives them a you know competitive advantage 
when at the NFL level, they have to give out this stuff. They have to give injury reports. Uh, they have to do all that stuff. And last time I checked, those, those teams still do totally fine. <laughs> I like the tangent, man. I don't, I don't think I'm going to disagree with anything you said. And honestly, I, I, I mean, I don't want to diminish his perspective on this because he's spending countless hours and trying to prepare for this and trying to do everything he can to find a competitive advantage. But I'm with you in saying, like, is Stanford really going to be – I mean, I think the quarterback thing I, I kind of understand, but you're right. The offensive line stuff, I'm just kind of going, like, first off, it's not like Stanford has faced any of these guys, and the scouting report is going to be completely fresh regardless. I mean, they don't have hardly any game tape on any of these offensive linemen. So what does it really matter of who's starting at left tackle? Like if, right tackle, if you right lose this game because you said that you're going to start George Moore at right tackle instead of pretending he's possibly at left tackle, you got way bigger problems. <laughs> totally. Totally. All right. Uh, let's move on to the next one here from at MF underscore read. Does Oregon or sorry, does Siaki Aika end up a duck? I might've brutal, brutally pronounced that name, but uh, that's a recruit. Oregon was in on pretty good from the Utah area. A couple of cycles ago, I think that was 2019, went to LSU, played quite a bit last year on their national championship team. He has entered the transfer portal. Um, I think we might have brought his name up in the past. Um, but Matt, what are you hearing there? Is this somebody that Oregon fans should kind of be aware of? And, and from a scholarship perspective, does it make sense to you? Should they be aware of? Absolutely. I mean, it's possible. Uh, am I going to come out and say that um, – Oregon is the favorite. Oregon is going to 100% land him. No, I'm not going to say that. He obviously wants to come home. I think he wants to come home and play closer to, to his home state of Utah. We know Utah is a serious player here. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if the way BYU is playing and considering they're in the state of Utah as well, that they get into this mix and that they uh, are a factor here. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if USC tries to throw their hat into the ring. A lot of this is also going to come down to when does Iaka want to decide and when does it best to Oregon to add a guy? Because if you take Siaka Aka, uh, you are not going to have the ability to add, let's say, JT Foreman, uh, 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 JTT or, and Corey Foreman and Iaka. You can't add all three of those guys. So if you – or a Sierra Wright or a Bryce Foster, um, you can't add this transfer and still add two more high school prospects right now. It's going to require a couple other things to happen to do that. Decommitments uh, most, most impactfully from this class in 2020. So I think that the timelines of all of this is going to really make things interesting. Like if he comes out and says, hey, I want to make a decision in the next couple, couple of weeks – and I want to enroll in a school as quickly as I possibly can. Uh, does Oregon roll the dice and say, okay, well, we'll take you, but we're going to, by doing that, we're eliminating ourselves of landing a potential both of Corey Foreman and JTT. Well, however, you know, low of a possibility that is, you're officially ending yourself uh, being able to, to be in contention for that. Or maybe a more realistic scenario, by taking Siaka is are you willing to pass on a Sierra Wright and a Bryce Foster addition to this Oregon roster? And you only how can only take one of those two guys. Um, or maybe Oregon looks at this and says, you know what? Like we think we're, we, we know we're in good contention for Corey Foreman. We're now in good contention for JTT. We know we're in good contention for Bryce Foster and Sierra Wright. 
but we can't definitively say we lead for any of those four. Yaka wants to come now. Let's take him and roll our dice on one of these other four coming. And if we miss out, we miss out. Uh, at least we've landed a, a high profile guy. Um, I think Oregon is probably where he wants to go, but does it all kind of line up? There's a lot of logistics in play here and a lot of timelines that have to fit. And it's just, it's very complicated. And this is what makes adding transfers at times very hard because you got to make some really tough decisions of when you take them, can you take them uh, type deal. I think positionally it like kind of makes some sense down the line. Although I feel a lot better. I know we said this earlier in the week, about what Oregon has as an you know interior line spots based upon what we've heard about the developments of Keon Ware Hudson and Christian Williams. I know we feel really good about what Popo Amave can be in 2021 replacing Jordan Scott, but um, like I think a couple of years ago, I probably or I, I know I, I think we both made these comments when Oregon missed on him a couple of years ago that it felt like boy that could be a big miss because it just wasn't clear who was going to be Scott's replacement. It's kind of shifted a little bit now where I think we feel a lot better, and of course I still want to see where Hudson and Williams go out and play and see what they can do this year to kind of prove everything we've heard this fall, um, you know, kind of prove that there's proof in the pudding there. But um, I, I think if you miss on him, I'm not going to be, I get, it, he's a guy you'd like to add. I, I mean, he's obviously a talented player. He played on a national championship team last year, but I don't think it's a must take from a positional perspective right now, I guess is kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Like I, like I, I think you could go both ways. Like, Jordan Scott's gone after this year. Popo Omave is gone the year after that. Do you have the confidence that you've got other massive nose tackle, defensive tackle type players on the roster? Or can you go out and find one quickly that make a quick impact to replace, you know, both guys when they're gone in two years, when both right. of them are out of the program in two years? Or is it just the best possibility to go out and and land, you know, and and take him? And, you know, that kind of really eases the stress of going out and finding a massive nose tackle in the next, you know, 18 months. Which is a fair point considering for the prime, you know, primarily it's hard to find those body types out West. You know, that's something that has been talked about in the past. So um, I think that's definitely a name to follow. I'm sure we'll have more conversations about this going forward and in Oregon's involvement and definitely on the message boards at duckterritory.com. So go ahead and keep a lookout for that. Uh, final question before we go to the head to the break here from at Jeremy one time. Micah Pittman had half the starts and half the yards last season as Jalen Red, who's struggling to get open. By the way, those are Jeremy's words, not mine. It seems the coaching staff last year gave Josh Delgado a chance to take the starting starting slot spot over Red. Is he overhyped? What say you? Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, real, real quick, are we talking if Micah Pittman's overhyped or is it Jalen Red that's overhyped? I, I believe it's Jalen Red, and it is a little bit of a convoluted question here, but I, I'm, I'm ex- I think I'm reading between the lines here and saying, that Pittman was more productive than red in half the games or about as productive. And that Josh Legato was given a chance to start over Jalen red. And I kind of disagree with a couple points here just to start out with of, I don't think Jalen red really struggled to get open last year. He had, he was second on the team in receptions with 50. Um, he had a streak last year with six consecutive games with at least one touchdown. He had two and two of those games. Um, you know, he had tie, at, at five foot nine, he was tied for the team lead with seven touchdown receptions. Um, do I think there are guys on the roster who could challenge him. Sure. I don't think it's Josh Delgado though. Um, I think there's a very clear hierarchy at receiver. Uh, I don't think he's overhyped at all. And in fact, I think we made this point. I can't remember which podcast is because again, we record so many, but that like, I think red's kind of underappreciated to a certain degree. Yeah. I mean, he's had a 
pretty impressive, productive career. I know he's not DeAnthony Thomas, even though he's got a similar body type and maybe similar skill set um, to what DeAnthony could do. And again, I know that they're not identical players, very different in some areas, but I, I think a Red's a player that you, I think it maybe gets underappreciated. And, and I know this should be the last season he's at Oregon. It's possible he comes back in 2021 and takes advantage of that um, extra senior season. But I think he's a player that whenever he does leave, you know, and Oregon also has bringing all this talent receiver. So maybe it's not fair to say this, but I think his contributions are going to be missed um, because he is a dynamic player in space. And Oregon has used him all over the field in gadget plays. Um, you think about a couple of those. Um, well, they've used him coming around on jet sweeps. They've had that. I love that play that Marcus Arroyo used a couple, you know, a couple of times last year where you have the receiver come in motion and then you throw a screen pass to him and then he just kind of has to beat one guy on the edge. Um, the Reds scored in a couple of those. I know Michael Pittman did as well. So, no, I don't think Jalen Red's overhyped is what I'll say. I, I mean, Jalen Red had I mean, not to interject here, but no, go ahead. Like, he's one of seven FBS players last season that had a streak of six consecutive games with a receiving touchdown. Yeah, he, he has a touchdown 12 of 25 games played the last two seasons. Uh, one of three FBS players with at least seven receiving touchdowns and two rushing touchdowns in 2019. I, th I think he is the most underappreciated player on this roster. Um, he is the most, I, I, one of the toughest dudes we've seen come through Oregon the last few seasons. I, I don't think people realize how tough this guy is. And, you know, I, I know, I think it was last year, um, one of the, I can't remember what coach it was, but I distinctly remember it happening that they called him pound for pound, one of the toughest players on the team. Um, and he did not play in the Rose bowl. And part of me kind of goes back and thinks some of often Oregon's offensive struggles in that game was because yep. he wasn't on the field. Go back to Arizona state in that game and Oregon struggles on offense. He wasn't on the field. He didn't make the trip because he was hurt. Uh, for, for that game. I, I think Jalen Red is going to go down as one of the most underappreciated receivers we've got. He's statistically not going to finish as uh, one of the all-time best. I mean, maybe he comes out in, 29, in 2020 and just goes bonkers and, and, and really just you know doubles his numbers across the board, which would be just crazy. Uh, but nonetheless, like, he doesn't even have a thousand yards receiving, but I look at him and think this is a guy that just, he means so much to this team, whether it's on the field from a production standpoint or whether it's an, it's a leadership culture type of standpoint. I, I don't think Jalen red. I mean, I'm not trying to no offense to um, no, no offense to Jeremy, Jeremy but I, I, I just think he's, he's super underappreciated and there's no reason in my eyes to look at red as an overhyped type guy. Now that doesn't mean uh, you and I have both said this, that that doesn't mean that at the end of the year, red might be the third best receiver on this team. Um, that, that wouldn't surprise me one bit either. Like I, I think Pittman could, could really elevate himself. I think there's a reason why Pittman was in the slot last year and is now listed on the outside this season. They're getting him on the field for a reason. They can't afford to have Pittman sitting off on the sideline because Red's in the slot. They've got to have both guys out there. 
Yeah, and I guess if we're going to address Jeremy's question or misinterpreting and he's asking about Micah Pittman, I'd also say I don't think he's overhyped either. So to either of the receivers, I don't, I don't think any of the top three guys are overhyped between Johnny Johnson, Jalen Red, and Micah Pittman. I think in, you know, the players you could consider overhyped are some of these, these guys in the two line. And I think I don't even want to say that because, frankly, we haven't seen hardly any of them play. So um, I think the one interesting comment we got from um, Joe Moorhead this week was, he said how fast, and he I think it was really, really fast, Chris Hudson is, um, in that he feels like the guy on this roster where it's, okay, we've adjusted for Micah Pittman. We've, we know we have Johnny Johnson. We know we have Jalen Red, but we got to figure out a way to get Chris Hudson on the football field. That feels like that receiver this year. Like It was Pittman last year where they knew they had Jawan Johnson. They knew they had Johnny Johnson. They knew they had – Jalen Red, and it was kind of like, okay, we now have a fourth guy. It's Micah Pittman. We need to get him on the field at all costs. Let's figure out how to do it. Chris Hudson feels like this version of that this year where maybe he doesn't have, you know, maybe he doesn't lead the team in receptions every single year or every single game this year, but it really feels like Chris Hudson is, has become that guy where it's, okay, he does something that everyone else doesn't do uh, or he's really talented all across the board and he really elevates the standard, we've got to figure out ways to get more out of him because of his impact. I'll be very curious to see just overall how they utilize this talent at receiver. Yeah. A, a ton of just different body types and skill sets. I know that, you know, you look at Johnny Johnson and Micah Pittman on paper, they're similar physically. I think they both play quite differently. And Jalen Red's obviously much smaller than everybody else. And then you got Chris Hudson, who's pretty slight of build. Boy, can he run, it sounds like. And, and then you've got some taller you know, receivers and Devin Williams and Brian Addison um, who are on, also on the two deep. So I, I'm, I'm curious to see kind of how they're all deployed and how they utilize this group. I think we've said this before. It's a group in which we feel really good about the top three. And then that four, five, and six, maybe seventh receiver, you're kind of like, boy, this could really be the decision of why this group is kind of just as an entire unit decent. Or as an entire unit, they could be one of the better units in the conference. Like I, I look at that and think, I voted Johnny Johnson to make all conference. I think Jalen Red and Micah Pittman will be very good receivers for Oregon in 2020. They'll be one of the, you know, they'll be if if you were to, to pick 25 of the best receivers in the conference, I think you can put those three guys in that in that top 25 list. Um, are they all going to be in the top 10 though? Uh, I think only Johnny Johnson, maybe Micah, maybe one of those other two, Micah Pittman or Jalen Red, could make that top ten. But the next tier, a Chris Hudson, a Devin Williams, a Brian Addison, um, maybe it's a an Isaiah Crocker, maybe it's a, a Josh Delgado, maybe it's a Lance Wilhoit or J.R. Waters that emerges. But that next tier of group of guys, the receiver spot, will dictate whether this is a group where they're consistently going four wide, five wide in games, and they're throwing the ball all over the football field, or they kind of go heavy and play with more tight ends, play with more running backs, and and try and stick with a four- or a five-man receiver rotation. All right, that's going to do it for the first set of questions. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll answer the next three more questions, the next three questions on the mailbag.
All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel with us on the show. As always, three questions in for the mailbag, three more to go. Let's go. From at Jeff Brosey, we hear rumblings that the NCAA will give athletes an additional year of eligibility to COVID, but could players refuse it and use the seven-game season to gain eligibility to the NFL sooner, i.e. KT opts out after 2021 season? Hashtag Odds and Audibles. Thanks, Jeff, for using the hashtag. Um, it's more than rumblings. I mean, that's that's what's been agreed upon. Um, I'll start there. And then secondly, like, absolutely. I, I don't think anything changes for someone like KT. He's three and done. I, I would be really surprised if not, right? Um, and, you know, uh, like, I guess in theory, he could stick around longer, but it won't be because he's required to because the NCAA says he's still a sophomore in 2021 and when, in fact, he's been at Oregon for three years. Um so like totally, I mean, absolutely. I don't, this doesn't really impact anything in terms of the eligibility window of actually leaving. This just allows players like a Jordan Happel, who's already on the record saying he wants to stick around to do so, to add an, you know, an extra year of eligibility. So a player with NFL aspirations like KT, um, you know, other players in the roster, absolutely. They're going to be able to make that decision if they want. Mikhail Wright's probably another name to know and follow from that regard in terms of he'll be, you know, finishing up his third season in 2021, uh, maybe a Mace Funa. Just some guys off the top of my head. Uh, Micah Pittman, we just mentioned him a lot. Another player in that 2019 recruiting class who's, who's shown really well early in his career and could, in theory, leave after 2021. The rule change here, or, or kind of this, this extension here from the NCAA, does, certainly doesn't force these players to stay any longer. This was a, you know, a, really a player-friendly ruling, um, and it's not restricting them from doing anything. Do you think there's a possibility? Let's flip the script here. Okay. KT comes out, has an insane 2020 season. Does he sit out all of 2021? Do you think that's even possible? We've seen some guys do it. Well, I mean, we've seen two guys from Oregon be two and done just last year. And I know it's different circumstances uh, because of what this year looks like. But Javon Holland and Penny Sewell only played two years at Oregon, as painful as that is to say. And, and really, you'd look at KT and be like, he basically played one and a half seasons at Oregon or one and three quarters, however you want to, whatever percentage of a full season you want to consider this to be or fraction, I guess it would be. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, yeah. I mean, I guess that's possible. I, I guess I'm just sitting here thinking, gosh, that would really stink if for like yes. two consecutive years, I don't think it happens, years, but I mean, for, well, for two consecutive years to lose Penny Sewell, who's arguably the, I shouldn't say, he's the best offensive line player Oregon's ever had. And then Kevin, Kevin Thibodeau, who's, I'm not even going to say arguably, even though he's only played one season, is going to go down as the best pass rusher Oregon has ever had until one of these other super recruits Oregon brings in maybe surpasses him. To just have both those guys only play you know less than three seasons, boy, that would stink. But I, I don't think you can really rule anything out. And some of this is going to depend upon what does the state of college football look like in 2021? I mean, I think we all feel like, boy, in you know a year from now, or I guess less than a year, 10 months from now, the state of affairs are going to be better and they're going to be able to play a full season. But um, that's going to depend on a lot of things outside of the scope of college athletics. So, I mean, I guess I, I don't think it happens um, based off of KT's just, you know, demeanor and exactly. kind of, you know, what we've vibe of we've gotten with him. Um, just, I was just curious of what you thought that would happen. And maybe that's what the question was trying to, to say. Um, I don't know. I, I, I just was flipping the script there a little bit. Let's move on to the next one. All right, let's move on to the next one. This one is even more open-ended, and I'm, I'd be curious to see how we want to attack this one. From at Mikhail McCannahan, who is the greatest duck athlete, in your opinion? 
And it's not, it doesn't say all time. It doesn't say now. Um, I don't know how we want to read this one. Uh, <laughs> there's certainly like a ton of different directions to go. I um, think if we don't say Ashton Eaton, we're going to piss off a lot of like track aficionados. All right, let's say Ash. Should we just say Ashton Eaton and jump to the next <laughs> one? No. Um, like, well, let's let, let's 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 rather than saying all time, let's say currently. You know, competing for Oregon this calendar year, who is the greatest duck athlete? Let's switch it to that. On and any I, team, on any team that currently enrolled at the University of Oregon. Let's go that route because that gives us more form of discussion. Because otherwise, I think yeah, we're gonna have to say Ashton Eaton um, and probably move on. But uh, if we're doing it that way, I actually think it's kind of an interesting question because um, you don't have that easy pick. It would have been Penny Sewell like that, right, a couple months ago. I don't know if we can say that right now. We just saw the women's basketball program lose their three best players. We just saw Peyton Pritchard leave, who was undoubtedly the best men's basketball player. Um, there are some good softball players, but I don't think any of them are like surefire first team All Americans. You know, I think Haley Cruz is probably the closest thing to that, and that might be like kind of where my head went first. But I think it's I think it's kind of a tough question here. I mean, maybe and I hope we're not missing like a really obvious multi-national champion for cross country or track and field. I don't think we are, but like, like, if, I guess, I guess like who would you say is like the best football player if you were doing this? Is, I mean, that, that's kind of difficult too, right? Like, I guess it'd be KT off the top of my head, but um, kind of a weird open-ended question to kind of consider, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a really tough one. Um, I mean, part of me goes KT. Yeah. Like I, I, I don't know if Chris Duarte is a pretty good athlete, but is he the best athlete on the team? No, or in the in the pro athletic department? No. There might be uh, like a track star that I don't know about, but yes. I would probably I'm probably gonna say KT. My dark horse would be Sedona Prince if she's able to follow through with all the praise we're hearing preseason from, from Kelly Graves, just because it sounds like there's a chance that she could be one of the best players nationally and a future first overall WNBA draft pick. Um, but we also haven't seen her like literally play in two years because she's been recovering from a knee injury and then had to sit out last year for transfer rules. So yeah, I'll also say, say KT, I think offensively it's really hard to, to name anybody unless you're maybe saying CJ Verdell. Um, and then in basketball, like you said, it's like, is it Chris Duarte? Well, he was kind of second fiddle last year and then missed the last, what was that, eight to, eight to ten games or so with an injury. Um, I don't know. Interesting question from Mikhail. Thanks for keeping it open-ended. So we had to like kind of use it as a thought exercise to figure out where it was going. Um, all right. Sixth question, Matt. And usually I'd say final question, but we may or may not have a bonus after this. Um, from at BBAT96, and this is a basketball question, Matt. So as we, as we talked about before the show, lots of hoop talk here. Uh, why has the men's basketball team had so many transfers over the last few years? Does it reflect poorly on Dana Altman? And clearly he's not referring to transfers into the program, but instead transfers out of the program. Oregon did have a couple players leave this offseason. Uh, well, more than a couple. Francis Okoro, CJ Walker, and Addison Patterson. Addison Patterson being the most recent one. What was that? Probably less than a month ago. Um, does it reflect poorly on, on Oregon in your opinion, Matt, or kind of what's your perspective on all the players leaving? This is very easy for me to answer. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, one, there's like 600 transfers every single year in college basketball right now. Um, the last three or four years, it, it, it goes up and up and up and up every single year. 
on average, every team loses at least one player on average. Um, every conference, every team in the country is dealing with this. It's going to get worse because of now the, and I'm in support of this decision, but in terms of roster management and keeping an entire roster intact will become even harder because the NCAA is going to allow a one-time transfer and immediate eligibility. Um, is it going to hurt Oregon? Is it a poor reflection on Dana Altman? No, because Oregon continues to bring in elite recruiting class after elite recruiting class. Top grad transfers continue to transfer to Oregon. Top JUCO transfers, top traditional transfers continue to come to Oregon. And most importantly, Oregon keeps winning. Like, <laughs> like if Oregon wasn't winning and transfers yeah. were happening on an all-time high and it was going crazy, like, yeah, then you kind of like, okay, what's going on here? But at the same time, Every year, Oregon keeps winning. Every year, Oregon is in the contention for the league title. Every year, Oregon is, is, at the end of the year, playing as one of the best teams in the country. And we have never seen a coach be so successful in the NCAA tournament as Dana Altman. And so I don't think it's an issue at all. I'm with you. And, and I, basically, I, I agree exactly what you said there. I think if we were looking at this going like, they're only winning 15 games a year and everyone's leaving. You'd be like, gosh, that's crazy. But the reality is that's not the case. And like you established, I'm not even, we don't even need to run through this too much more, but just as you established, it's become commonplace for almost everybody. It seems like to leave either to go pro early or to transfer. It's very infrequent. You get a player like a Peyton Pritchard, we should note, who stays four years at the program they started their career at. All right. Um, let's, let's, let's wrap it up there, Matt. Yeah, let's, let's end it here. Um, Thank you for submitting these questions. For Eric Scopel, I'm Matt Parim. You've been listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks.